Hey, before we get started, will you help me welcome all of those joining us at our Littleton campus, our Arvada campus, Lakewood campus, those joining us online, and of course, the men and women at our two God Behind Bars campuses. We love you guys. All right, so we're in the middle of this series on joy. It's based on the book of Philippians, the small book in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul that has a lot to say about joy. And if you missed any part of this series, I want to encourage you, go online, download it. You can download the app and listen to it. Get caught up. But here is basically the question we've been asking. How do you know joy no matter what? How do you know it? So let's start with this. First thing we have to agree on is number one. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are meant to know joy. You know, there's this interesting passage where Jesus sort of spells out a little bit about joy with his disciples. And it's one of those passages that if you're not careful, you read right past it. It's almost sort of cryptic. It's found in John 16. And here's the setup. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, right? And, and they're talking. And he says something to them that catches them off guard. He says this in John 16. Verse 16, he says, um, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. And, and it's pretty funny because you're as confused right now as the disciples were. In, in the Bible, it says in verse 17, they looked at each other and they're like, wait, what did he just say? Wait, here, we're going to see, we're not going to see. Wait, where's he going? What is he doing? And Jesus sees that, that his disciples are confused. And so he comes back in verse 18 and he said, wait, are you confused? Okay. Here, here let, me, let me help you in a different way. He says it this way. He says, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief is going to turn to joy, guys. And then he gives this analogy. He says, look, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby's born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. She forgets her anguish. Is that right, ladies? You, you forget your anguish? <laughs> I can tell you this. Um, our third child, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. So Harry was brought into this world um, in, in what I would, I'd like to say was pretty traumatic. Um, our first two kids, no big deal. But the second one, um, Chrissy had had a cesarean section with our second one, but didn't want to do that with Harry. And so the doctor told us, warned us, look, this could be sort of traumatic. And so I already went into this whole childbirthing thing with sort of some high blood pressure. And, you know, I'm not really good around that sort of stuff anyway. And so I go in already concerned. And it doesn't take long for this whole childbirthing thing to take a really nasty turn. I could tell something's not right. Doctors are rushing around. He goes out. He comes back in with this device. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't go to medical school. So I'm like, what do, you, what do you have in your hand there, sir? And he's like, we call this a vacuum. And I was like, yep, I only know one vacuum. You put it on carpets. <laughs> Nothing to do with childbirth. Well, what the vacuum does is help bring the child out into the world. And when he began to use the vacuum... I can tell you, like, that I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? I'm about to pass out. And I'm nervous. My heart's pounding. I'm starting to sweat. Like, I, I have to sit down, and, and the vacuum doesn't work. 
And so now it starts like the, the tension in the room is palpable. People are starting to get real worked up and the doctor leaves and he comes back in with like these giant ice pick things that I later found out are what we call forceps. I am not even going to describe it. No one should ever see what I saw because it was absolutely traumatizing. And, and to this day, you know what, though? What I'm most proud of is that through all that, through all that pain, through all the forceps, through all of that, there's one person didn't make a peep. You know who that was? Me. I've never said a word about it. But I will tell you that it was the most traumatic thing, like watching this happen with Harry, and yet after he was born, man, it was pretty awesome. John Orberg said it this way. He said, what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, what he's trying to say to us, is that in this dark world there will be pain and there will be joy, but in the end, joy will win. Jesus is saying, in the end, joy will win. So if joy has not yet won, then it's not yet the end. Well, the disciples will experience this firsthand, right? Because soon after this, Jesus is crucified. And it's one of the darkest days, maybe the darkest days in their life. But then three days later, he's risen. And there's great joy. And this great joy doesn't just mark the disciples it marks the early church. It marks the apostle Paul. And so Paul writes this book, Philippians. It's been called the book of joy. Now, if you missed two weeks ago, like I mentioned, you want to catch Sean's message because he sort of lays out all that Paul went through. He said, man, Paul had experienced some bad days, and that's an understatement. But this is what we know. We do know that Paul wrote this book, Philippians, from prison. Now, um, there's some pictures of what this is called the um, famous Roman Mamertine prison. And um, you can't really see it well, but if you focus on that middle picture, it'll help you understand a little bit about prisons in those days. That second sort of chamber underneath, prisoners actually stayed in here. Rome would put the prisoners in that bottom area awaiting execution, or oftentimes you just leave them in there to die. Now, there's a ton of debate on whether Paul was actually in this prison, right? But here's the two things we do know. That this is what prisons were like in Paul's day. And Paul was no stranger to the inside of a prison cell. So wherever Paul was, we know he'd been in prisons like this. And when he wrote these words, he was sitting in a prison, which is what makes these words so amazing. At the very beginning of this letter, Philippians 1, he says this, look, yet if I live, that means fruitful service for Christ. I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. Sometimes I want to live. Sometimes I long to be with Christ. It's far better for me, but it's far better for you that I live. You see, Paul was marked by what happened. The early church was marked. They lived in utter poverty, and Paul says that out of their extreme poverty, they were joyfully generous. And that came abundant giving. See, Jesus was right. Jesus was right. Nothing could take their joy away. Not the early church, not Paul. He was right. The church 
was experiencing what Jesus promised when in John 15, he says this, he says, look, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Yes, that your joy will overflow. See, this is what Jesus had in mind for his people, that joy would overflow in spite of where you are, the circumstances you find yourself in, the prison cells you might be in. And so here's the question this day for everybody at all of our campuses. Is your joy overflowing? Like if you had um, sort of like a gas gauge, but that gauge measured joy, I want you to think about it. Where's your joy gauge these days? Because if it isn't full and you're a follower of Jesus, you can reclaim that joy that was promised to you. See, joy is meant for you. Now, this doesn't, doesn't mean that life is always easy because we see this in the Apostle Paul. Our assignments aren't always easy. Life isn't always easy. But what you notice in Paul's writing is in spite of his circumstances, like his joy meter, man, it was always full. So if your joy meter's not full, here's the question. How do we reclaim it? How do we reclaim what Jesus promised for us as followers of Jesus? Well, here's the first clue. Paul writes it this way. He starts this letter out in Philippians 1.10 when he says, Look, for I want you to understand what really matters. What really matters. So what does really matter? Well, I think one thing that really matters in order for us to reclaim joy is first, we sort of have to understand what joy is right? This helps us frame what we're pursuing, what we're reclaiming. And um, I love Dallas Willard, theologian, author. He talks about joy and he frames it this way. Listen to what he says about joy. He says, joy is not pleasure, a mere sensation. Rather, joy is a pervasive and consistent sense of well-being. It's not just feeling happy in a moment. Joy is a pervasive and constant, almost like knowledge of well-being. Like, this is going to be okay. Being overwhelmed with a sense of well-being. And so Jesus is saying that you can overflow with a pervasive and constant sense of well-being, no matter what. But here's what I've realized, that oftentimes the reason why I don't experience that kind of joy, like a pervasive sense in every situation, like this is going to be okay, is because too often I'm looking at all the wrong places to find my joy. Now, this might be like just a message for me, but this is the reality of how I've seen the depletion of joy in my life. Like, what is the stuff that has depleted joy? And oftentimes, it's me looking for joy in all the wrong places. So let me start with this first one. Looking for joy in people. Now, let me say this. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think having community in your life, like, this is really important. Being connected to people, this is extremely healthy. But often, often, we base our joy on other people. So I'll hear people often say, well, I, I would be joyful if I had a boyfriend or if I had a girlfriend or if I got a wife or if I had a husband. 
Or sometimes, a year later, those same people are going, well, I wouldn't be robbed of my joy if it wasn't for that boyfriend or that girlfriend or (laughs) husband. Look, I believe people are good. And that these things, having community, like this is good. But here's what I've learned about joy. The kind of joy that Paul experienced, it isn't based on people. An author wrote this about Paul. I mean, you see this in his life. Like based on, because of Paul was um, being treated like a common criminal, many, many were ashamed of him and no longer wished to be associated with him. They didn't want to ruin their name or worse, have their lives threatened. And the reason why you can't base your joy on people is because people will let you down. Now, I... I'm not trying to you know, be a cynic here, but let me just ask all of our campuses. Let me just ask this question just to see if we're on the same page. How many of you in your life at least once have been let down by another human being? Raise of hands. Oh, my goodness. 100%. Right? Why? Because people are just like people. I love hanging out with people. But what we're talking about is the source of joy, right? The source of that pervasive and constant sense of well-being. It doesn't come from people. Paul was alone in a prison cell writing a book about joy. And you know, too often what I've experienced is when I think I'm going to get joy out of somebody and then they let me down, isn't it so true that that's where some of the worst pain comes from? transitions into like anger or bitterness and then seeps into every area of my life. You're going to have some great days with people. Then you're going to have some bad days with people. And I do think life is better lived with people in your life. Just don't look for people to be the source of the kind of joy that Paul had, the kind of joy that Jesus talks about. And if we get this wrong, our joy will be dictated by circumstance, right? It leads me to the second thing. Now, I want you to think about this. You don't have to write it down or pull out your phone. All you have to do is think about this. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think just for a few minutes on this question. Simple question. Who are you? Not your name. I mean, who are you? Make a list in your head. Who are you? Now, if we were to write that down, like if we were to write that down and collect it, here's what I would bet. I would bet your list probably looks a little bit like my list, right? Because I did this exercise. I'm like, well, who am I? Well, I'm a pastor, and I'm a father, and I'm a husband, right? I bet you thought of some of these same things. And it's interesting because all those things are true. But those are descriptors of the stuff that I do, not of who I am. Most people do this. When you ask who you are, they, they list the things they do. Most of us, when asked about who we are, we see it through this lens, like the things that we do or the stuff that we've accomplished. And look, I'm not suggesting what we do and what you do isn't important, but it's not the source of joy. 
The things that you do, they're just not because. The things that you do, they can change in an instant. Yeah? So before I came to Red Rocks, a lot of you may not know this about me. I haven't been here from the beginning of Red Rocks. Um, I've guest taught the first five years, but I came here around year five. And before Red Rocks, I did some other stuff. The stuff that I did was I had an idea, like 2006 or seven. I had an idea for some software, and I decided I was going to build a company. So I went out and raised capital and started chasing this dream, startup company. I traveled all over the place for four years. That's all I did. All I did was think, eat, breathe, sleep, Monvi. This is what I was. We wrote books. We met with important people. It became everything about me. In fact, I had a friend say to me, and he was sort of trying to be funny. He's like, oh, man, you're like Mr. Monvi. And I wore that like a badge of honor. I'm like, I am Mr. Monvi. This is who I am. This is my dream. And I'm accomplishing it. And I had friends that worked with me. We employed about 20 people. And then one day, it started to fall apart. Not for any other reason than that's what startups sometimes do. And I remember to this day, I'll never forget it. I was in San Francisco, I was in Palo Alto at the Sheraton at Palo Alto. And um, I had just gotten off the phone with our board and the reality of what was happening was setting in. And now I had to call a bunch of friends that worked for me and I had to explain how this whole thing was gonna come to an end. This had been four years of my life. Like four years of blood, sweat, and tears. It was, it felt like it was a part of me. I felt like this was what God was asking me to do. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and just like losing it, like crying, like I couldn't stop crying. And I didn't know what God had in store, but in that moment, there was no joy. <laughs> it was awful. I didn't see how the future, where, where was this going to go, and how was God going to redeem this, and this was my life, and now what, and all these friends, my mind was swirling. And while God did redeem this, and honestly, you know, as God does, takes uh, ashes and turns it into something better than you could have ever dreamt of, I bet there's some people in this room, in our campuses, who've had a sudden career change that rocked your world, or a job loss, or frankly just sitting in the reality that you're not doing the thing you wished you were doing or meant to do? Anybody else have plans get changed or interrupted by God? Does it ever feel like that, that he's in the plan interrupting business, like this is what he does? Look, I'm learning. You, you can't reclaim your joy through what you do. No, you should do good work. We should strive to do good work, but don't look for your source of joy, the kind that Jesus is describing, to be sourced in what you do. Because what we do on this earth, it can be temporary. Paul knew that. And then lastly, 
I know what you're going to say as soon as I say it. I know what you're going to think, but don't base your joy on what you have. Now, it's a bunch of us that go to church, and we're Christians, and we're like, I know that. You don't base your joy on what you have. It's not about money. It's not about that stuff. Joy can't be based on what you have. But here's the truth. Too often, what I have and what I don't have, it does affect me. Too often, I get sad, and I go to the mall, and I buy a pair of jeans. Do not judge me. You do it too. And I, isn't it true? We may say, now, now this is the truth. I look around and when life isn't going the way I want it, I can be tempted to think, well, if I had more stuff and some more things, and we don't phrase it this way. We don't say, well, if I went out and got a car, I'd be more joyful. But we live that way. We may not say it, but we can live that way. And I know this wasn't at the source of Paul's joy. I mean, he says it so clearly in Philippians. He says this, Philippians 3.8, look, I've suffered the loss of all things. I just count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And these are just three things, three things that I think oftentimes we look to to bring joy. But there's, I mean, there's way more than that. Things, these things, they can't provide pervasive and constant sense of well-being. As soon as I say it, you go, yeah, it, they can't. You know, praise and applause, it can't. Achievements can't. Right titles can't. Alcohol can't. Education can't. Money can't. And when you hear it that way, doesn't it ring true? You're like, yeah, those things can't bring this pervasive sense of well-being. I've experienced that. And yet, here's what we know, that Jesus promises joy. And Paul had joy, like pervasive, constant sense of well-being, in spite of his circumstances. Paul experienced it, so doesn't it beg the question? Doesn't it beg the question for those of us that follow Jesus, how did Paul do it, right? In that prison, in those circumstances, how does that guy do that? Because that's what perplexes me. I'm not in that prison. I've never been in a prison like that. And I struggle with a joy meter that doesn't seem full. How did he do it? Well, I was thinking about something. Have you ever recorded DVR to game? Like any of you sports fans record a game, you know, DVR a game to watch it back. Well, look, this last year was pretty great if you're a Broncos fan because, you know, we won the Super Bowl. But I would argue that there was one season that was equally as exciting. It was the season of 2011, and that was the Tebow years. Anybody remember those? Those of you that weren't here, just seriously, you just missed one of the most unbelievably like roller coaster rides ever. Well, okay, so there was this one game. Um, it was in December where the Broncos were playing the Chicago Bears, and I got a bunch of buddies back in Chicago. So normally, I wouldn't mess with the game. I'd watch as much as I could because we had um, five, back then we had a five o'clock at our Golden Campus. Sad face. <laughs> so I wanted to watch this game. So I, I set the recorder and then I let everybody know. I sent out a text, hey listen, Please don't tell me how this game is going to turn out. I emailed everybody. I came into the church. I'm like, please don't tell me how this game's going to turn out. I'm going to watch it later so I can talk trash to all my buddies. I went and found like a really secluded corner of the church, and I'm just trying to stay away from all of you. 
Um, for, I'm like, I just one hour. That's all I need, one hour. Well, at, at about 5.30, Sean was teaching. I walked back to the kitchen. So at our old Golden Campus, we had this kitchen, and then there was this green room. And I stayed away from the green room because there was a little TV in the green room, and I knew that the band and some of the guys would be watching the game. So I walk into the kitchen, and I literally, I'm going in there. It's 5.30. I was hungry, all right? I can't just stay in a closet all night. So I walk into the kitchen, and um, no sooner do I walk in than I hear a roar out of the green room. It was like a roar. Sean's in the middle of teaching. There's a roar in the green room, and all of a sudden, the door swings open. Now, John Trowbridge, if you don't know John Trowbridge, he's the most amazing guy. He works here, and um, you'll see him around here, this campus, all the time. He is amazing. I love that guy. But he comes through, and he doesn't even know to this day what he did to me. But he walks through, and it was almost like slow motion, where he goes, you're not going to believe. And I was like, no. And he's like, we kicked a field goal and won. I'm like, no. You make it this so close. I'm like, you know, John. I walk out to my car, and I get in, and I drive home, and I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to watch the game anyway. So I turn it on, and I watch the whole game. And you know what? It was a really pleasant experience. Because most of the time, Broncos games, here's, I, I don't sit down. I stand just like this in front of the TV with this face. I'm exhausted at the end of a Broncos game. Like, I need an ice bath. I'm like, oh. It was really one of the most pleasant Broncos games I've ever had. I sat there, didn't really matter. I was like, this is great. You want to know why it's so great? Because I knew how it ended. <laughs> I knew where it was going. It didn't matter we didn't score in the first three quarters. I was like, this is great. <laughs> and I realized this, that when you know the ending of a game, it changes the way you experience the game, right? Whole lot less stress. Not, your heart's not pounding out of your chest. You just know how it's going to end. You know, knowing, knowing how something ends, it changes the way you experience that thing. So take a pause for a second on that. Made me think. Early church, Paul they must have known something about the way this thing ends. And I wonder what that was based in. Now see, the greatest day of the Jewish calendar is called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And this happens on the seventh day of the 10th month, right? And this is when the high priest would go into the holy place with sacrificial blood to atone for himself and all the people, right? To make it right with God, forgiveness of their sins. So it was set aside for that. So people wouldn't eat, they fasted, they didn't work. The, the priests would take off like their normal regalia and put on white linen, that's it. And then the priest would walk up with a bull and two goats. He'd first sacrifice the bull, and that was for the forgiveness of his sins before he went into the Holy of Holies, right? Because he needed to get right, and that was for he and his family. But then he'd take this, the first goat, he'd sacrifice that, to the Lord, but it's the second goat that's interesting. Because the second goat actually has a name. Jewish people called it Azazel. And Azazel 
literally means the goat of departure or scapegoat. Leviticus said it this way. It said, a goat upon whose head were symbolically placed the sins of the people after which he was suffered to escape into the wilderness. A scapegoat. And we, we understand scapegoats, right? You understand scapegoats. Like, I would say a couple of scapegoats. Mrs. O'Leary's cow, for those of you who are history buffs, started the Chicago fire. No, probably not. But the poor cow got the blame for it. Or Bill Buckner, right? You know him from Boston. Glad they finally won a World Series. But when that Mets game, the ball rolled between his legs. Dude, he got death threats. Or the Cubs, who I hope will always be awful. Old Bartman sitting over there with his headphones, and, you know, they blame him to this day for them not getting to that World Series. This is scapegoats. These are people who take the blame. Take the blame. So they had a scapegoat, an Azazel. So after that priest would make that sacrifice of these animals, he'd lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat. And then he would confess the sins of all of Israel, of Paul, of all of them, all the Jews. And he'd symbolically transfer the sins of that nation onto that goat. And then, it's interesting, he would wrap the horns with a red crimson sash. And then someone would lead that goat out into the wilderness for it to take the sins away. This is what happened regularly. And Paul would know this is how you get right with God. But he would also know. And then one day, God came to earth in the form of a man named Jesus. And that Jesus was perfect. He would know that he bore a cross carried it up a hill, and he too wore a crimson ring around his head, but wasn't a sash. It was a crown of thorns. You can almost see him go, oh, he's our Azazel. Like, he's the one. The hymn writer says it so beautifully. When he said, my sins were laid on Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, he bore them all and he freed me from the accursed load. My guilt was borne by Jesus. He cleansed the crimson stain in his own blood, most precious, and not a spot remains. Like Jesus died for our sins. But he wasn't just like Azazel of the past, a goat that was let out that you'd have to do it regularly. No, no, no. He took the sins, but then after three days, he rose again. Like he said in John 16. And he conquered in that moment death and hell and the grave. And it was finished once and for all, forever. And Paul knew, Paul knew somehow, deep down, he was able to wrap his head around, this is how it ends. Like, this is finished. And this was his source of joy. Like, when you begin to frame it that way, listen to how he says these things. You can almost... Feel the intensity in Romans 8 when he says, look, I am convinced 
that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, life can't, the angels can't, the demons can't, our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow, even the powers of hell, they can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above in the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can almost see him. He's reflecting on what Jesus did when he writes in Ephesians 3, Listen, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand and grasp, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. See, this, this was the source of Paul's unshakable, unsinkable, unchangeable joy, pervasive and constant sense, sense of well-being. Like, this is going to be okay. Why? Because Jesus did it all. Paul knew, knew how the thing ended. And it didn't matter if he was being beaten or he was having a nice meal. It didn't matter if he was in a prison or a comfortable bed. He never had to sweat the immediate because he knew how it ended. Deep down, he knew it. It wasn't just words. He writes it in Ephesians 1. He says, listen, his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, and this gave him great pleasure. Red Rocks Church, man, when you know in the end that Jesus has won, it's like that game, isn't it? Isn't it like that game? Like I'm sitting there and there's three seconds left and Prater's got to kick like a 47 million yard field goal and I'm thinking, ha, we got him right where we want him. <laughs> Isn't that how it is when you know the end of the story? You don't sweat it. Joy that is sourced in Christ, can I tell you this? It affects the way you eat, it affects the way you drink, the way you love, laugh, exercise, play, work. And in the end, I have to remind you, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's the end story for you. You've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you've been accepted, you've been secured. Boom. And it is in that that Paul found pervasive and a constant sense of well-being. That's joy. So let me ask one more time. Out of all of our campuses, is your joy overflowing? And sometimes, isn't it true, we just need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did. And I know you come in here, and some of you, man, you feel like you're sitting in your own personal jail cell. And maybe you feel like you've been sitting in this thing forever because your marriage is falling apart. Stuff's not right with your kids. Your job, you just lost it. Or you or somebody you care about desperately just got the worst news, awful diagnosis. 
You feel hopeless and lost. But I, you, you got to wrap your head around this. You got to wrap your head around what Jesus was saying. He's saying, in the end, joy will win. And if joy has not yet won, then it is not yet the end. It just isn't. Don't you forget, follower of Jesus, what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. It says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Don't forget Ephesians 2.10, when the apostle Paul writes, look, you're God's masterpiece. You were created to do good works with God prepared advance to do. Don't forget what he wrote right there in Philippians when he said, our citizenship, it's in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may these words jump off of the page and resonate in your mind every time you find yourself in a spot where your joy meter just isn't where it should be, where the Apostle Paul writes again in Philippians, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not what I should be, but I'm focused all my energy on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I strain to reach the end of this race and receive the prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us up to heaven. What did Paul know? He knew who won in the end. Jesus wins. That means you win. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And you're like, man, I'd like to, I'd like to know that kind of joy. I'd like to know that kind of man. Well, let me just say a couple things real quick. Number one, if you don't know Jesus, start with this. Jesus loves you. God loves you. John 3, 16 is pretty clear. Number two, if you feel broken and incomplete, join the crowd. All of us have fallen way short. None of us are perfect. We serve a perfect God, but none of us are perfect. And this is what I know. We don't need goats anymore, Azazels, but there is only one person who can forgive sins. There is only one way, and that is Jesus. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You can know Jesus and you can know joy. At all of our campuses in this room, can you bow your head for just a minute? If you walked in here and you needed to hear this message because you don't know Jesus, I'm gonna simply invite you to get to know him this day. And all you have to do is acknowledge, one, I'm a sinner. Two, he's the way. Believe he raised from the dead and you'll be saved this day. If that's you, if you say, I want to know that man this day, at all of our campuses in this room, just slip your hand up real quick. Want to know Jesus this day. Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends, and I pray that the reality of joy sets in, that our circumstances, those, they come and go. People change what we do, jobs change, but in you, you are a rock. You are unchanging. You finish this. We know how the game ends. We know that joy wins. Father, help us wrap our minds around that truth. 
and believe that if joy has not yet won, then it is not yet the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, at all of our campuses here at this room, can we stand and let's worship together.